hey, it's time to sit in the, in the front, front row. I knew that one. Okay, hey, I'm so enthralled, I never uh, noticed that the sermon went 25 minutes over. Or, personally, I find witnessing much more enjoyable than golf. <laughs> or, I volunteer to be the permanent teacher for the junior high school class. <laughs> or, I love it when we sing songs I've never heard before. Hmm. Or, since we're all here, let's just start the service early. So, those are not the typical things you would hear in church, are they? If you've ever lived far away from a loved one, you know how hard it is to not be there physically when they're in a situation where they have great concerns or spiritual needs in their lives. The Apostle Paul had a profound love for the Church of Christ because of his great love for Jesus Christ, who bought the church with his blood. And in this letter to the Church of Colossae, Paul expresses his deep love and concern for their well-being and their spiritual protection from error. As this chapter begins, we see Paul's great heart as he writes to these believers that he loves, trying to help them because they were under attack by error that would seek to get them off course spiritually. So in the first five verses of the chapter, we see specific concerns Paul had for the church, and he models for us really what our hearts are to be like towards our own local church and the church universal. So we begin, 1 through 5, Paul shows concern for the church. First, Paul prays for these believers. In verse 1, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. So Paul mentions his great struggle here, and he uses the Greek noun, agon, the word we get our word agony from. So Paul states he has been agonizing for a people he had actually never met face-to-face. Paul's love for Christ caused him to have such a deep love for every believer that makes up the church of Jesus Christ. And he wrestled in prayer for them, agonizing for these people. Not just a quick passing prayer, Lord, help them to be okay. But the, the prayer that is hard work, the prayer that's wrestling and struggling because of a deep concern and a heart of passion for people and their well-being. In verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, Paul talks about how Epaphras, the one who brought the gospel to this church and founded it, he says, was always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect, fully assured in all the will of God. So the enemy of our soul attacks believers, and we counter these attacks with standing firm in prayer because we are in a spiritual battle. And when you love somebody, you want what's best for them. And when trouble comes spiritually, we must be like Paul and demonstrate our love for people by praying and struggling and agonizing in prayer for them. This type of praying comes when God has burdened you to intervene for the spiritual welfare of others and how often we will worry about others or talk to people about others, but don't take the time to struggle and agonize in prayer on their behalf. Paul wasn't like that. Next, Paul pointed them to Christ. He says, he prays that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What a profound statement. In Christ, 
all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Amazing. Paul agonized in prayer for their hearts to be encouraged to stand firm against the enemy. And how? He first states by being knit together in love. Believers uh, under attack need to be connected with other believers that they love and that are loving them. When you love other people in the church and you are loved by other people, you watch out for each other so no one is led astray by error. Believers in a local church can hold each other accountable. One commentator put it this way, how does the knowledge of Christ come? Other than the word, obviously. Through brotherly love in the church. The depth of understanding is facilitated when believers' hearts are bound together in love. When we are loved by other believers, we experience Christ through them. And thus our knowledge of Christ is enhanced. End of quote. So when the church stands together and when they love each other, they really are protecting each other from falling into error. And that's the purpose of shepherds, that why God gives uh, elders who are shepherding the people to protect them from error. And we do this for one another as we love each other. When a believer is weak in their faith, they tend to have doubts, but strong believers have a conviction of assurance. Paul had concern for the Colossians to have this full assurance that they had been taught and that they understood that what was taught to them about Christ was absolutely true. He's driving home the truth that the way to be spiritually strong is to understand the truth of, about God, what God has said and who Jesus is and have a settled conviction about Christ and all that he has done for you. He has provided for every believer to grow and to walk with him. If you are not certain about all God has done for you in Christ, or you've never really learned because you haven't been in the word as you should, you become easy prey to be listening to error and not even realize it because it's always cloaked. It doesn't, error doesn't have a red flag saying heresy. You know, it's always cloaked in truth around it usually to make it very palatable and believable. So he's driving home this truth that everything you need to know about God and how to walk in his ways is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus that all spiritual treasures are hidden. That word means concealed or stored up. Every believer who has come to know Christ personally, um, yet some are not discovering all of these treasures we possess in our relationship with him for failure to be students of his word. Every believer must have a settled conviction and understanding about Jesus' deity and his absolute sufficiency. It's easy to be up and down in the Christian life when we are not knit together in love with other believers or if we're not digging into the word to discover how he wants us to live and honor him. And because Jesus is sufficient, there is no need for man-made supplements. Jesus is the source of all true spiritual knowledge, and which gives us assurance because we know he will do just as he promised to do in his word. And yet, in our culture, it seems Christians are often ignorant of God's word and easily led astray by errors of every kind. Paul goes on to express his concern and praise for them in verses 4 and 5. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. The Gnostics were persuasive and clever in their arguments, and they came along and said, yes, yes, you've trusted Christ, but you need something more to be more spiritually uh, alert and in a higher place. And the tactics used to present this error can be very persuasive and eloquent. 
Such error either denies Christ's deity or denies his sufficiency to save or his sufficiency to sanctify, to make you more like Christ. Having warned them to stand firm, now Paul praises them and he rejoices that even though they were under this attack, they still had discipline and stability in their lives. Like soldiers in an army, they were disciplined and they were standing firm under attack. And Paul's praying for their steadfastness to continue. Fellow believers need to be encouraged as well by praising them for progress they are making. And Paul's desire was that they continue to be strong even under attack. We all need that kind of encouragement. We all get discouraged. It's so easy to focus on our own weakness and failures and to see that we're making any progress at all. It's wonderful when believers come alongside and encourage. So being knit together in love with fellow believers should bring encouragement. And then he goes on in verses 6 and 7 to talk about a stable walk that protects. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, overflowing with gratitude. In these verses, Paul tells them how to protect themselves. These believers had received Christ Jesus as their Lord. They believed he was the anointed one, the Messiah. They believed Jesus was the one who made possible salvation as he came as the God-man. As one famous evangelist once said, no man can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ, and he may have had an emotional religious experience. However, he is not truly converted until he has surrendered his life to Christ as Lord, Savior, and Master. Since the Colossians had received Christ Jesus as Lord, they would be safe from spiritual error if they walked in submission to him. And that term walk, as you know, refers to just our daily conduct, how we respond in the home to our spouses, to our children, out in the, uh, driving a car, going to work, whatever. So how does a believer protect themselves from believing error? By their daily conduct, continuing to follow Jesus and honoring him. Paul specifically says in verse 7, having been firmly rooted, and this is from the world of agriculture, that speaks of what was eternally planted at the moment of our salvation. He planted us in Christ. And this is where life begins with that spiritual union with Christ, the moment we come to him by faith. John 15, 1-6 speaks about this truth. Jesus is the source of spiritual life. Secondly, he says, being built up. Having been rooted in Christ at salvation, now we are being built up as we make progress growing spiritually, the whole process of sanctification, being more like Christ every day. And believers who are easy prey to error are those who are not being built up by the word. They are unaware of solid biblical truth. They may attend church regularly, they may even go to Bible studies, but if those churches and Bible studies aren't teaching the doctrine and the truths of scriptures, they're going to stay young in their faith and lack discernment and be susceptible to error. Established in the faith means that believers are know the basis of their faith, and so one way to be protected from error is to be solid in your convictions and what you know is true from the, tr from the Bible. We never outgrow the basics of the truth. It's not like, oh, I learned all that and I'm moving on. Solid faith in the truths we know, that's what protects us from error. 
rather than a, uh, a rather seeking after some type of experience or some other new book or some other new Christian fad uh, is not what we should be directing our thoughts to. Rather, a greater understanding of who Jesus is, his incarnation, his resurrection, his work of sanctification, all of that is to protect you from error. Every believer should be familiar with the fundamentals of the faith. There are great classes. There's a class called that. Fundamentals of the faith to ground you in the truth. Then Paul says, overflowing with gratitude. This is so convicting because the choice of words that Paul uses here suggests that our thankfulness should be like a river overflowing its banks. We've seen a lot of that from the hurricanes and footage. But think of it. That's to be our constant way of life in thankfulness. Thankfulness. A believer is to be thankful because you will be thankful if your focus is not on your circumstances but on the greatness of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. Because no matter what's going on in your life, what we're looking at here doesn't change. When we are thankful for Christ and all he has done for us, then we are not looking for something more or new or extra biblical. Um, dreams, visions, new revelation. Scripture alone must be our authority. It is only Scripture. I pray that each of us here are like these believers, grounded in the truth, walking in obedience, rooted in the truth, and thankful. Thankful. Now he goes on to talk about futility of philosophy, which is really what the Gnostics were introducing. The definition of the word philosophy comes from the two Greek words phileo, to love, and sophia, to wisdom. And Paul is describing for us philosophy based on man's opinions. And you only have to look at Romans 1 to see how it came along, philosophy and how it got started. As mankind pushes aside the light of God's truth, then he fills his mind with his own worthless speculations about God, and the result is a darkened mind. As people suppress the truth about God, that's clearly revealed in nature and in their own moral barometer of their conscience, um, they become philosophers instead, instead of worshiping the only one true God. So here in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, we see the basis for deficiency of philosophy. He, Paul says it's empty deception. It is not what it appears to be. It sounds good. It may offer hope, but it's not reality. He says, nor is it according to the traditions of men. The teaching instructions that people pass down to one another year after year, generation after generation, that's not the basis of truth. Apostolic tradition is good because it came from God as the origination. But philosophy, that originates with people, actually fallen people with minds who are tainted with sin, so they're warped in their perspective to begin with. It's, it's of no value because it comes from false thinking about God and the universe as things are handed down one generation to the other. Sometimes it's from traditions having to deal, let's say, with the world of science, like evolution. But that's only man's speculation. It's deficient and it's deceptive, but it's claimed to be fact. And it can be the same in religious traditions, where it's passed down. It's not based on God's word. It's some man, I don't know, countless centuries ago, who came up with this, and this is why we do what we do, instead of based on God's word nor according to the elementary principles of this world. It's a reference to the letters of the alphabet all lined up in a row. It's kind of a hard um, verse. It seems Paul is saying the false belief system and their teachers of it are in reality corrupting the basic ABCs of God's word in the Old Testament. Philosophy tries to sound so deep and so advanced in thinking 
but it's infantile and anything but profound. Then Paul summarizes by saying philosophy is deficient to embrace rather than according to Christ. Jesus is the source of everything that is true. God's word is based on the truth of Christ, not man's speculations about Christ. And that brings us to the sufficiency in Christ as seen in verses 9 and 10. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. We don't need the futility of philosophy, because in Jesus is all fullness of the Godhead. Here is the key truth in Paul's letter right here. In Christ, we are complete. Every spiritual need you have or will ever have has been fully met because of our union with Christ at the moment of our salvation. You do not lack anything. You are spiritually complete, and there is nothing you need to, that you need apart from what God has said in his word. Make sure you aren't looking for spiritual answers or experiences outside of the word of God. There is no new teaching, even under the umbrella of a church, that's based and puts man's experience on the same level of scripture. You don't need science or sociology or philosophy to grow spiritually. All of what you need is in the Bible, so don't be sucked into the error of man's opinions, man's new books on how to be successful with planning your future, your money, with your parenting, or with any aspect of your life. I'm astounded that so many new parents go to books uh, for parenting help based on man's opinions rather than on God's word. Don't be taken captive by empty deception. Why would a believer look to an unbeliever for spiritual instruction? Next, our complete salvation in Christ. In him you were also circumcised by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. It appears that the doctrines from the false teachers declared that you needed obedience to the Old Testament laws, especially circumcision. And Paul replies, explaining that, you know what, you've already been circumcised. And even though most of them were Gentiles, I'm sure they, I don't know if they looked down and said, what? But uh, when God called out Abraham to be a people for his name and all of his descendants, he commanded all male babies have their foreskin be cut away, as this was the place where life is produced as well as the sin seed passed on. It was an outward picture of the need for inward cleansing and change and cutting away of the heart. Countless places, places in the Old Testament, uh, Israel's told to circumcise your hearts. Paul then is teaching these Gentiles, they don't need to submit to that, the physical right of circumcision because they've already experienced the spiritual inward circumcision done without man's hands. The moment of salvation, our sinful nature that totally dominated us from birth, is replaced with a divine new nature. We still struggle with sin because we're still in a fallen world and we're still in a human body. But as believers, we are no longer dominated by sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. That's why we're told to reckon it to be true. It is true. We have been given a new nature in Christ, and the old self has been crucified. Read Romans 6, 1 through 6. In verse 12, Paul explains spirit baptism. The moment of salvation, what happens? 
the Holy Spirit of God places you into Christ. Even though we weren't present at the moment of his death, God places every believer into Christ spiritually. Therefore, you died with Christ and also rose with him to walk in newness of life, no longer dominated by sin. Again, Romans 6, 1 through 6, Paul um, expands this. So the point Paul is making is that Jesus, in him, every spiritual need has been met. He has changed our nature, so we are new on the inside, and there is no religion, there is no experience, there is no philosophy that could ever do that. Then Christ provides forgiveness of sins, and this is just such a stunning verse. When you were dead, in your transgressions, which that's how we all came into this world. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. How amazing is this? Before coming by faith to Christ, we are spiritually dead, we have uncircumcised hearts. But at the moment we come to Christ, recognize we're sinners, when we turn from our sin and call on him to save us from the debt of our sin that we just read about, he gives us a new nature and we are forgiven all our sins, past, present, and future. All our transgressions, forgiven by God, and he no longer holds that sin against us. He's canceled out the debt of sin. So, by illustration... Very thick, fat book. So let's see, page one. Oh, infant, selfish, throwing yourself on the ground, having tantrums. That's you. You don't remember. Disobeying parents, biting your sister. Don't remember. Um, being mean to girls in school, disobeying your teacher, lying, cheating, taking things. And, you know, this is very tiny print. I don't really know how many volumes it would take for our lives to record all of our trespasses. The ones we don't remember, I mean, it goes on and on. Think, stamped, clean, gone, canceled. Amazing, amazing truth. Every selfish deed, every tantrum, as I said, this reminds us of the immense debt of sin we all have because we have not obeyed God's law. And the more we sin, the greater the decrees are against us. I don't know how many volumes. I suppose the longer you live, the more volumes you got. <laughs> all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. No religion can deal with this serious problem. The only one who can meet our greatest need for forgiveness and deliverance is Jesus Christ. You recall when the Romans crucified a criminal, they used to put their criminal charges hanging over their head. That's what really ticked off the religious leaders in Israel because you know, it just said over Jesus, King of the Jews, which was the truth. But Jesus, at the cross, took our certificate of debt and nailed it to the cross, paying our debt in full. This is what he has done for every true believer, and this is why every believer is complete in him. Christ alone brings transformation. As he sets us free from the bondage of sin, he forgives our sins, he declares us righteous. And he makes it possible to have victory over Satan. And that brings us to verse 15. Jesus is victorious over all the satanic forces, that is, the rulers and authorities and all the angelic ranks. The false teachers were involved with the worship of angels, as verse 18 says. 
they would have taught that angels are involved with controlling the heavens, or you need to know your angels so you can get closer to God. And how many people today believe and embrace this same teaching? They talk to their angels, they give their angels names, they believe this is a way to be closer to God through their angel. Paul's declaring, you don't need angels. They don't control anything. He's in control. The evil angels have already been defeated by Christ. At the cross, Jesus disarmed hostile angels as Satan, their leader, the fallen angels, was defeated. Satan has lost his power then to intimidate us with the fear of death and judgment. You don't need a newer, deeper teaching to help you in your spiritual life. You don't need man's philosophy or religious teachings from men. If you know Christ, he's transformed you. He set you free from the bondage of sin, and he has forgiven you for the guilt of your sin. He has made possible victory because he defeated our greatest enemy. Paul goes on to talk about the false spirituality that these false teachers were talking about. And the, he begins with the error of legalism. These false teachers were intimidating believers, acting as their judge as they evaluated them. Oh, you mean you don't keep the Sabbath? Oh, you, you aren't celebrating that uh, festival coming up? You're eating that? Beware of the danger of legalism. I know it changes its list, but basically it's a list of what I do and what I don't do. And because of that, I'm spiritual, at least on the outside. And nothing can be going on on the inside. And the list just changed for the generations. So beware of the danger of legalism. People thinking they're spiritual because of some outward appearance. And then the danger of mysticism. This is a pursuit of a religious experience wrapped up in feelings rather than the objective truth from God's word. Often false humility by means of self-abasement or, as he brings up again, the worship of angels, because people just need the help of their angels, special angels, um, inflated opinions oneself, claiming to have visions uh, while driving the car or shaving or whatever. <laughs> These things take the focus off of Jesus and to me, mine, what I did, what I saw, and lowers the source for spiritual growth to then be your authority is your experience. True spiritual growth comes from obedience to Christ's word by reading it, by studying it, by memorizing it, by obeying it. It is not about your subjective experience, which changes by how you feel. And by the way, you think about, remember the bumper sticker, don't drive faster than your angel flies. I mean, that kind of stuff, that really is a big part of our culture. And then the danger of asceticism. To deprive your body or inflict pain to the body was, is often thought by many to make you more holy or more spiritual in some way. Sleeping on boards, taking a vow of not speaking or fasting or celibacy, it does nothing. It is through the death of Christ that we are set free from trying to be uh, holy by man-made rules or works. People may be impressed about your deprivation, but God's not impressed. Self-discipline is required, it's true, in the life of every believer, putting our flesh to death. But that is out of a heart of love and obedience to a Savior who has bought us with his blood. Outward change, denying of the body, does nothing to get your heart right with God. Rather, it only gratifies the flesh and wanting to appear more holy than others. And ultimately, it leads to self-worship. So, I plead with each of you to make sure you know Jesus Christ the biblical definition of the person and work of Jesus Christ in his word, and that that is your authority. 
We are to be overjoyed with the salvation Christ has made possible to all who turn from their sins and trust his work on the cross to be forgiven. So be a student of the word of God. I'm thrilled that you're here. I'm thrilled that you want to learn God's word. Be connected to a Bible teaching church where you can grow and be knit together in love and be protected by being in a local church that loves you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this incredible truth from this chapter, Lord. It's, it's so much more than we could ever scratch the surface of like we did today. But I, I thank you for canceling out that certificate of debt that we could never pay for all of our transgressions against you. Lord, I pray if there's someone here who really has only had mental assent, uh, that you will help them to understand this is a turning from sin and a commitment to you as Lord and Master of their life. And I pray for each one of us as we leave here today and interact with people on our way out and at home, at the grocery store, wherever we are, Lord, help us to be overflowing with gratitude. Whatever comes our way today, Lord, help us to remember what we have to be thankful for and all that you suffered, all that you made possible for our salvation. Thank you.